0: You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Happy April Fool's Day, everyone. There might be some sense of play in honor of the day, but I'm not joking around when I say I've had some students and friends who've confided in me that poetry sometimes just isn't their jam because they don't understand at times what the said poem or poet is trying to communicate. And sure, poetry sometimes has a reputation for being opaque or unwieldy, And so some people just prefer to settle down with a more digestible narrative, something easier to follow than the kinds of challenges that poetry may issue. Some readers might expect something along those lines, poetic ones too, pun fully intended, upon picking up this absolutely marvelous volume of poetry published by McGill Queen's Press called LARF by Jason Camlott. And yes, you heard me. It is titled Vlarf, spelled V-L-A-R-F, and I really can't be effusive enough about it. What I myself realize is that Camlot's volume of poetry isn't necessarily about understanding every word, but rather experiencing the poems, the fullest range of effects for which sometimes we don't have a vocabulary. And the result is very, very rewarding. But rather than explain this myself, I've invited Camlot to be interviewed for Getting Lit with Linda to explain the nature of this exquisite volume to you. Before I get to our discussion, let me just say a few words about this most accomplished poet and critic. Jason Camlot is Professor of English and Research Chair in Literature and Sound Studies at Concordia University in Montreal, or Techoge. His recent critical works include Phonopoetics, The Making of Early Literary Recordings, published by Stanford University Press, and three co-edited collections, one titled Collection Thinking, Within and Without Libraries, Archives, and Museums, published by Rutledge, Unpacking the Personal Library, The Public and Private Life of Books, published by Wilfrid Laurier University Press, and Canlet Across Media, Unarchiving the Literary Event, published by McGill Queen's University Press. He's also the author of five collections of poetry, most recently, of course, Vlarf. Jason is the director of the Shirk-funded Spoken Web Research Partnership. You can check it out at www.spokenweb.ca. It focuses on the history and literary sound recordings and the digital preservation and presentation of collections of literary audio. I've added a link in my show notes to The Spoken Web, which also has its own podcast series. And now, my dear listeners, this is my interview with Jason Camlott. Hi, Jason, and welcome to Getting Lit with Linda.
1: Hi, Linda. It's great to be here.
0: It's great to have you. Um, I want to start, because some listeners won't understand the meaning of the title of the volume of poetry, with Vlarf, which to me sounds a little bit like a dog choking up on a fur ball, Vlarf, Vlarf. <laughs> Can you explain the significance of the title for our listeners?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So it is a playful sound, as you say, mm-hmm. and one that maybe evokes sort of grotesque playfulness or something like that, <laughs> uh, which is what I was getting from what you were just saying. And that's part of the point of the, the, the word, the name. Uh, vlarf is a, it's a fun word to, to, to say, really and it also sounds like a nonsense word, perhaps. But it does refer to a particular sort of, maybe tradition is too important a word, but a movement in poetry in the early Two thousands or at the end of the nineteen nineties, the beginning of the internet era, mm-hmm. uh, which you I'm sure you've heard of, which is flarf poetry, uh, mm-hmm. which was a form of poetry that uh, was you know started in New York and it made its way to San Francisco when I was a graduate student there, and so I sort of went to several flarf events and got to know some flarf poets there, and essentially they were early users of the internet for the purpose of generating. Off-putting texts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, really, sort of thinking about the affordances of search engines early on, there was far less available, far less content available than there is now. But even so, there was some interesting content available that you could search for. And if you ran really strange internet searches, (laughs) um, it would generate bizarre texts. And sort of flarf poets would take advantage of the the results of those early bizarre internet searches and generate poems out of them with the goal of creating texts that were inappropriate in some ways, you know, <laughs> inappropriate to literature, I would say, How you know, so? uh, well, really through, through, through contradictory search terms, bringing together registers from very different discourses, and then creating poems that bring together the affects that are associated with those different discourses, in in a, in a lyric form, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, where those kinds of affects and discourses were never meant to be put together, and mm-hmm. so so off-putting in that sense, you know, um, difficult, disturbing, uncomfortable, you know. So a lot of flower of poetry was really about exploring uncomfortable combinations of affective and discursive registers. So, and it was also, there were a series of techniques and constraints used to generate these poems. And so I always found it fun and interesting. I was, a spe- you know, like when I, was, when I was a graduate student, I, I did study with Marjorie Perloff and, mm-hmm. you know, she would bring in all kinds of uh, language poets and things. So I was already interested in trying to find ways out of myself, you know, mm. uh, out of my lyric self or out of my, you know... Um, yeah, just out of myself, really, and, and sort of to, to ride the wave of what language can do sort of beyond my, my ego or my subjectivity even, you know. And Flarf poetry seems, you know, one step beyond that, um, mm. which, which interested me a lot. So I played around with some of those techniques at the time. But at the same time, when I was doing my graduate work, I was also studying Victorian Literature. Which
0: infuses uh, this text.
1: Yes. Yeah, so that's the second part of the answer. Sorry, it's a very long answer. <laughs> we'll take up the whole podcast just explaining Vlar. The title. <laughs> yeah. That's the there we <laughs> go. Uh, so, so the V refers to Victorianist. Basically, it just means someone who is. Um, you know, an expert or uh, someone who's been entrained, you know, let's say by a certain professional institution to study Victorian literature, which is not a natural thing by any means. You know, it's a, it's a discipline or it's a field of, of inquiry and study that developed historically over time, and one that I was very drawn to from, from when I began to study literature and that I ended up studying as a graduate student. So the V in Vlarf is Victorianist. So essentially, in a nutshell, Flarf means Victorianist Flarf.
0: So it's an amalgam of Victorian, yeah, it's a Victorian Flarf. <laughs> Victorian
1: Flarf, but vi- I say Victorianist Flarf because uh, Victorian Flarf would suggest that there was Flarf in the Victorian period, <laughs> which, you know, one could argue there was. Uh, it, you know, I, I, a lot of my research has been around sort of periodical and print culture in the 19th century, and so much of it is made up of excerption from other works and republishing them and strange juxtapositions of different discourses. So you could read you know, certain Victorian periodicals as you know, uh, works of, of Flarf poetry <laughs> if you wanted to, but that would be Victorian Flarf, and that's not the subject of this poetry book. Victorianist. Yeah, I, Victorianist <laughs> I Flarf is sort of those who are studying <laughs> Victorian literature, mining Victorian literature as a Flarf poet would mine the internet. Yeah.
0: Got it, okay. All right. So. What you're suggesting also comes across. There's a kind of playfulness or whimsy. So you were initially suggesting that Blurf is uncomfortable, that it has these kind of discordant registers and so on. But actually, your collection has this element of fun and plain whimsy. And in fact, I would say there's a lot of winking going on. like Wink, wink, did you get it? (laughs) And so I like that. I think that that's a very playful. You may disagree. It looks like you do. Go ahead and tell me why you disagree (laughs) with that right away.
1: No, I don't disagree. Well, I disagree to the extent that winking suggests that I have a very particular audience for these poems, and only only they are going to get them. Yes, and and so because winking can be. A form of recognition, right? Yes. You know, for those who yes. sort of understand the joke.
0: You've anticipated and, my question, and it can be a
1: form of alienation <laughs> if you don't know. Like, why are they weaking at me? Like, I don't know <laughs> I'm <jealous>. getting. <laughs> There's something in their eye, you know. Looks like. so, and and in some ways, this book was written for a particular community of readers at my at my expense. You know, like it, it's almost like, and that that community of readers are are the my fellow Victorianists, you know, the people Mm -hmm. that I go to annual conferences with and and talk about Victorian literature in ways that that I couldn't expect anyone else to because they haven't devoted their life to studying and reading works of Victorian literature. Um, So in some ways, there are probably winks aimed at them. But at the same time, it's really not intended to be exclusionary in that way. You know, it's really sort of meant to be interesting, discursively interesting for anyone uh, reading poetry at any level, or maybe who's never read poetry before, and to just try to figure out what the heck is going on. Because a lot of the poems are delivered from the positions of speakers, and so they're quite accessible that way, you know. So yeah, I do dedicate the book, if if I'm not mistaken, I haven't looked at it in a while, but yeah, it says, for we other Victorianists, right, Mm -hmm. the ones with whom we whom, you know, so it's it's sort of like the the people with whom we um, engage in a particular kind of uh, discourse around uh, a period of literature, right, you know, so that is a pretty small group, well, actually, there may be like 800 members of the North American Victorian Studies Association, and that's my, those are my peeps, you know, disciplinary peeps, but yeah, they're just one of the sort of potential imagined audiences for... I think uh, I'm one book. of
0: those imagined audiences. I'm not a Victorianist, so mm-hmm. I'm gonna say I'm one of your peeps, Jason. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Well
1: that's it. I think everyone can be a peep <laughs> if, if they if they, you know, want to engage with the language on the page in this book. So.
0: There is so much, as I say, it was a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed reading it. There was a, a moment when you referred to an archival researcher. And I, of course, I as an archival researcher, I loved that an archival researcher makes an appearance. It lands right in the middle of the volume in page 55 in book two of the poem called Animal Slippers, which incidentally also features Oscar Wilde, one of my all-time favorite writers. Now, in this particular poem, the the poem depicts a speaker, an interviewing subject, who asks Wilde all kinds of questions. And we're told that Wilde replies, but we aren't actually told what the responses are. And I thought, please don't use this as a model for our interview. Please don't use this <laughs> as a model for our interview. Um, so there's some pretty significant withholding. Why is that? Why have you absented Wilde's responses? What effect does that have?
1: Well. Let's take a step back at this poem, I guess, um, <laughs> to it's divided into two books, right? Correct, um, yes. And the second book has that sort of interview with Wilde, that one-sided interview with Wilde. And it has annotations on the sides of the text, yes, right? Yes,
0: I was going to ask you about the annotations as well.
1: And the first part, and even the first part of book two, mm-hmm. which moves into that interview with Wilde, has only the annotations, but the actual center of the poem. The mm-hmm. thing that's being annotated is missing. And it's one example of many, many examples in this book of kinds of erasure or removal of information that occurs, right? And actually, it's it's part of one of the primary constraints or processes of writing that has informed m- many of the poems in this book, which in some cases was erasing works of Victorian literature and constructing poems out of them. And I can sort of mention other poems here. But in this case, it was writing long sort of narrative poems Mm -hmm. myself and then eliminating large portions of them. It's not quite answering your question yet, but I will note that the appearance of an archival researcher, (laughs) right, um, that you're referring to appears as a marginal annotation. Yes on a text that is not there. Yes. Right? So it makes you wonder, uh, well, what was is. there? <laughs> exactly.
0: I thought that was such a wonderful moment because, of course, that's what archival researchers also do. They also wonder, what was there? It's perfect, a perfect moment.
1: Exactly, and it's, it's kind of a, an enactment of the difficulty of trying to access a sense of knowing anything about the works that we study or engage with, whether you're reading a poem now and trying to decipher it, or whether you're going back to archival or historical documents and trying to unpack their significance. It's as though, in the end, all that really is left are our little annotations that we're trying to make sense of them, and the the artifact itself that's supposed to be the evidence, the boundary object for our discovery of some kind of truth about the past or about literary form or expression or feeling mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is uh, is never really there. And similarly, you know, if I'm to imagine engaging in an interview with Oscar Wilde, um, well, first of all, there's no, no possible way that I could write Wilde in a manner that would do Wilde justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, you know, you probably know Oscar Wilde had this reputation, not only as a a brilliant wit in his writing, but even more so as a brilliant wit in his oral conversation. And so it's partly about engaging in conversation with this Wilde that we will never know because there wasn't sort of a Boswell around jotting everything down that he said, (laughs) right? Uh, And so, so really there's this whole... Other world of his performance of sort of literature, thought, feeling emotion ideas that we will never have access to and and part of the fun and frustration I suppose of staging that conversation with Wild, probably post incarceration because he's quite depressed at this point, and it brings Wild into the present, you know, so he he's still alive in having the, tea in tea and biscuits in yeah the poem. having mm-hmm. tea and biscuits and like being offered. Uh, a role on a cooking show, on TV, and stuff like So it's definitely out of time, right, you know, uh, this engagement with Wilde.
0: That's the whimsy that I was talking about at the outset of our interview, that there is that kind of seeing or recontextualizing Oscar Wilde in this way.
1: Yeah, I don't even know if it's recontextualizing him so much as expanding our our sense of access to things through time mm. and dissolving boundaries between our ideas of mm. the past and the present, so...
0: Mm. I love that. So you've already referred to the marginalia which I was also fascinated by because as an archival researcher I'm often looking at books or documents where there is marginalia and then we have it's around constructed also around this conversation with Oscar Wilde where we don't get his responses but we have these kind of summary notes in the marginalia about what each paragraph is about which is really not about very much
1: (laughs) No, there's no content to the conversation, really, as you as you point out. So these margins were inspired initially by uh, actually a romantic poem, one that most people will at least have heard of, which is the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Mariner by Samuel if Coleridge. If
0: people, if my listeners don't know that, I'll simply put a, a link in my show notes so they can go off and read it thereafter.
1: Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, it's uh, it was the first poem in in Lyrical Ballads, which was the the, uh, the first issue of Lyrical Ballads, and then um, that's not the version of that poem that I'm sort of playing with in this poem, but the 1817 version of the rhyme had the addition of annotations alongside oh, the ballad, that. right? So so basically Coleridge sort of reconstructed uh, an ancient ballad in the rhyme of the ancient mariner and tells the story, but then in later uh, version of the poem, he adds these glosses that, you, that are very interesting if you, if you read them because sometimes they're describing just what happens in the stanza, mm-hmm. so they're like summaries, but sometimes they're deeply interpretive, so they actually inhabit an interpretive perspective on what's mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they really read like someone from a completely dis- different historical period trying to decipher the underlying meaning of yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So that was what inspired sort of the idea, first of all, of, of adding kind of interpretive glosses, sometimes descriptive, sometimes more than descriptive, mm-hmm. to to this poem. And then largely eliminating the poem and just leaving the interpretive glosses, which, again, is suggestive of the fact that, you know, the work of literature is there in, in great part uh, as a result of our construction of it, right? And so, so you're left leaving, uh, you're left reading just sort of, possible interpretations or description of something that is absent. So uh, if I just, you know, look at the very beginning of this Mm -hmm. poem, book one, it has four marginal annotations, two on the left side, two on the right side. Mm -hmm. And they read, this is my marker. The marker defies the two hermits' ornaments for gravestones, right? Mm. And so... You can only imagine, you know, what it is that's being <laughs> described or glossed or unpacked here. And um, and some of them sound like, oh, this may have been a quotation. So there may actually be mm-hmm. a kind of trace of the original poem here that's being just rewritten. The marker defies that could be the gloss writer's interpretation of what the marker is doing in this poem. Yes. Or it could, again, be a quote, you know. Uh, the two hermits sounds like, oh, there's a stanza here that describes two hermits, but we don't really know what they're doing there. <laughs> um, ornaments for gravestones. Okay, well, where did this, you know, so, and on and on. Know, and on, how right does
0: that now. relate to hermits? So. Yeah,
1: exactly. So so you kind of have to imagine a poem as you're reading through the glosses. But also you have to imagine who wrote these glosses and what their motives were for for writing them um,
0: puts archival <clears throat> researchers into question was very uncomfortable <laughs> oh
1: no well I yeah maybe it does <clears throat> excuse me maybe it puts them into question but it also sort of performs many of the acts that we do in in interpreting any kind of archival artifact you know? mm-hmm. yeah and then when you finally get the uh, get the benefit of the appearance of some kind of poem in the middle of these, it doesn't really illuminate the nature of the annotations <laughs> <doesn't> at all. <laughs> but it does maybe give you a sense of uh, the range of possibilities of annotating. Because again, some of them seem to be directly related to the content of the poem and others seem just sort of wild additions or interpretations to what is actually being recounted in, in the poem, which is this one-sided interview with Oscar Wilde. And if you if you've ever read Oscar Wilde's critical dialogues, like The Critic is Artist, uh, parts one and two, you'll know that those were always one-sided dialogues as well. I mean, there's always sort of one character, you know, uh, Algernon or Vivian, you know, essentially answering questions. It's, It's sort of Socratic in a certain way, you know, and so it does mimic a Wildean dialogue in a lot of ways too, you know. Except from the other side, you know, just only the questions and none <laughs> of the, the answers. Because the answers usually take 98% of the critical dialogue in Wild, and here you just get the 2%. <laughs> it
0: might so. be a modernist version, but we'll come back to that. There's a tribute to the all-star cast featured in the collection in the acknowledgements at the back of the volume. Corey, Oscar, Neva, Heike, and Finnick. Yeah. These are all family members, including presumably the family dogs, if I have that right.
1: Yeah, well, Heike and Finnick. Yeah, uh, I mean Finnick. Yeah, yeah. Na- yeah, so Corey, Oscar, Nava, Heike, uh, and Finnick. Um, but
0: the all-star cast does not include the guinea pigs, Fudge, and Blaze, both of, of which are the stars of Fudge and Entropy. Why aren't they included in that all-star cast?
1: It would have been, I guess if I had included them, it would have been In Memoriam. They certainly were an inspiration for one of the long poems in this book. But Oscar, Corey, Nava, Heike, and Finnick are are still alive and, and sort of my current family. So that's the only reason. Okay. You know? I have a question about Fudge plus, and entropy. Plus Fudge and Blaze get like a definite uh, oh. nod in, in having like a 15-page <laughs> poem written uh, it's from their perspective. The poem so. is beautiful. I, mean, oh, thank I
0: you. absolutely loved it. So, fudge and entropy. I thought for me captures one of one of the themes of the, of the volume, which is I think the proximity of beauty and love to destruction and violence. Not sure if that was intentional, but I was thinking of fudge and entropy and the Fruitman or even genealogy. So I thought I would ask you, what is the proximity of beauty and love to destruction and violence in this volume, and why are they so closely allied in the poems?
1: That's a really interesting question. I never would have thought of the poems using those terms, Hmm. because the way I would...
0: How would you, then? How would you phrase it? Yeah, I mean,
1: but to sort of translate it maybe into ways that I have thought about it or do think about it a little bit more, is that... It, there's a, a movement between, and I was talking about registers, discursive registers earlier, and affective registers. There's a pretty free movement between different kinds of registers, some of which I would associate with, you know, say beauty, with certain ideals of things, certain kinds of joy, and fun, and play, and the sort of freedom to to be playful and whimsical, even. That comes with that sense of security, right? You know, mm-hmm. the privilege really of being able to even think about beauty and much darker sort of registers that are evoked by and associated with maybe actual experiences of loss and death and, you know, discru- destruction and violence, but also with emotional baggage that you're not even aware of where that comes from, right? So, yeah so the poem fudge and Entropy, for example, on the surface, maybe is like a pretty whimsical adaptation of the dramatic monologue form from from, from Robert Browning we right should
0: we should let our readers know that the poem is written from fudge's point of view,
1: yeah, and not only written from his point of view, but it's it's a it's a dramatic monologue, meaning you only hear him speaking, mm-hmm. so you're not aware you don't really have uh, a respondent so it's a one-sided conversation a dramatic monologue is really a performance of one side of a conversation and you can only try to piece together the response or the effect or sort of who's on the other side we don't really even know we have a sense of who fudge is talking to Mm -hmm. but it's not completely clear fudge certainly is engaged in in the in speaking to this particular interlocutor who, if I want to spill the beans, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not like a big secret or anything, but it's just a stuffed uh, doll on on Nava's bed, right? So he's he's doing this long monologue to a toy, essentially, but like he doesn't know, like she's she's looking at him, and he asks sort of questions about her, like, why don't you cl- shut your eyes or whatever, like, <laughs> you know? Um, but my point was that. In one sense, it's quite whimsical to have a, dr- a long dramatic monologue delivered from the perspective of a guinea pig. Mm. But in another sense, as we move into Fudge's perspective, there is a lot of sadness, loss, things that aren't comprehensible to him, and a lot of information, I guess, about emotions in the family that he lives in that come across. And so.
0: Yeah, there are poignant moments like the moment when he realizes that the poet is praying for his aunt. Mm. It took my breath away. I thought it was such a this wonderful, poignant moment. I really like that a lot. But he doesn't really understand, Fudge doesn't understand what's actually happening.
1: No. Probably doesn't understand Hebrew either. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, he, but he can re, he can reproduce it phonetically. He say,
0: yes, I'm Jewish. Yes, there are Jewish guinea pigs. There are more of us than you might think. <laughs> yeah, that's true.
1: You're right. So he might actually know at least Berikutan and I. Um, yeah, but you also get the sense that, I guess, the conceit. Of a lot of the information that Fudge the guinea pig has. Guinea pigs are nocturnal <laughs> animals, as you know, um, but he seems to be able to tap into the dreams of his poet owner, and he refers to his owner as like my, the father poet owner. And so, a lot of the information is actually information that is this unconscious, affective, mm. um, you know, experience that he's getting from from the father poet. When owner when he, when he's dreaming, <laughs> you know, and that's one example. So like, I guess the father must have been dreaming about taking the dogs for a walk and stopping and praying for the health of his aunt who was ill, and um, yes, and somehow and that's somehow it. Fudge caught that, you know, because he has this sort of direct line to the dreams of of his poet he sometimes just calls him he's my poet (laughs) and um, reversing the the, the ownership of animals (laughs) yeah exactly great yeah but but I think that's just one one moment like that's a good example of a moment where there are shifts in registers in that case it happens to be human concern for another human but in in many instances I think there's there's a poignancy and sincerity and in my opinion kind of heartfelt depth of feeling in the guinea pig's expression of feelings for his brother guinea pig as well. So it's also, yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. There, There is an inclination, as you've said, in this collection to draw upon Victorian material, Victorian literature and so forth. There's even a, a poem also dedicated to Queen Victoria, which is a period that's famous for its impressive compendiums and long, long, very long (laughs) volumes, titles, subtitles, chapters. So I'm now thinking about the poem, Why I Am Not a Modernist, which is on page 45. Before I ask the question, I was actually hopeful I might ask you to read this poem, or at least the first maybe page and a half so people get a sense of the poem itself.
1: You know, once you start this poem, you have to go to the end. <laughs> no, it's a worry. It's a worry. But um, but I'll read it, and you can cut it. You can cut it after. <laughs> but if you'll I probably won't. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a this is the technique that I refer to in writing this poem was Mad Lib, right? So I don't know if you ever did Mad Tab Libs. um oh, no. Okay, so. Uh, did you ever read Mad Magazine? Of course, um, yeah. when I was yeah. a kid. Yeah. So, uh, I just
0: uh, aged myself by saying, <laughs> no, I don't know what Mad Magazine is.
1: <laughs> but there are also these compendium books that would come out where you would have blank spaces and it would tell you, fill in a verb, fill in a noun, fill in an adjective, right? And you would just ask someone, give me an adjective, give me a noun, and then you would read them back and it would be hilarious, right? You know? So in a way, this is a Mad Lib poem where I've taken Frank O'Hara poem why I Am Not a Painter, which is one of my sort of... I'm, I discovered that poem in high school, and it's, it's one of the reasons I started writing poetry, probably. Like oh, was, uh, wow. And essentially removed a large part of the poem and replaced it with other text. You know? So it's a kind of, in a strange way, a, a Mad Lib poem where, I, <laughs> where I've kept a lot of certain phrases from, from O'Hara's poem and adapted it to a Victorianist perspective. I actually read this at sort of final reading event at Acute yeah. um, last year. And Alan Perrow, who's a modernist, was, um, maybe you shouldn't use this in the podcast, but, <laughs> but he was howling in laughter. Like, so, so although this was sort of written in solidarity with Victorianists, I think modernists may find it amusing if they have a sense of humor. Um, Why well, I am not a modernist. I'm not a modernist. I'm a Victorianist. Why? I think I would rather be a modernist, but I am not. Well, for instance, Hugh Kenner is starting an essay. I drop in. Sit down and have a spot of tea, he says. I sip, we sip, I look down. You have modernism in it. Oh. I go, and the days go by, and I drop in again. The essay is going on and I go and the days go by. I drop in. The essay is finished. Where's modernism? All that's left is just dashes and blank space. It was too much, Hugh says. But me? One day, I'm thinking of a color, eggshell. I write a book about eggshell. Pretty soon it is a multi-volume work, not just a few books. Then another multi-volume work. There should be so much more, not of eggshell, of eggs, of how terrible shells are, and of the yoke of poverty. Years go by. It is even appearing in serialized, periodical form. I am a real Victorianist. My multi-volume work is finished, and I haven't mentioned sexual intercourse yet. (laughs) It's 39 volumes. I call it The Queen of Autumn's Sepulchre, a study of inscrutable codicils with official tables appended summarizing the report of the select committee on the 10-hour factory bill, vindicated in a series of letters addressed to John Elliot Henry William Percival Flattel, Esquire, one of the factory commissioners, rebutted in a series of pointed responses composed in anagrammatic verse by Reverend Reginald Winsome, with accompanying charts in color depicting the condition of faith in workers who have not been subjected to factory education, annotated by Elliot John Edward Charles William Henry Drylock, MP, with insights upon factory education, its extension and on the practicability of its application to other trades and occupations such as potting, slate quarrying, cops cutting, butty ganging, mudlarking, rat catching, siring, shepherding, tin mining, dressmaking, slopping, gardening, and pawling the willow. With entertaining stories enlivening the annotations selected from chapters in the life and other gay romps of experience of a Dundee factory lad, an autobiography, with humorous engravings of curious factory lad exploits, as interpreted by Joseph Henry William K. Claringbull, renowned engraver of 12 crochet edgings, with illustrative engravings, Edited by Henry John William Edgar G. Curling Hope, author of *The Art of Crochet* and *My Working Friend*, embellished with crochet patterns including Luna, Narva, Lola Montes, and Linfanta Lace, Dentelle Passimentare, Wheat Sheaf Pattern, and Leaf Edging, derived from *The Knitter's Friend*, being a selection of receipts for the most useful and saleable articles in knitting, netting, and crochet work as well as from Madame Goubeau's crochet book, lightly embossed in soft, lactescent paper along the edges of the most engrossing pages, as selected by the author. And one day, in a little magazine, I see Hugh's essay called Modernism.
0: <laughs> Bravo, you didn't even stumble once. <laughs> that's excellent.
1: Yeah, so that was a, that's a fun... It's a, this is more of a performance poem, probably, than anything.
0: It, lent itself to being read, which is why I was asking you to do it in part. But the other part is because I have a question that I wanted us to consider. The poetic voice here declares itself to be Victor- a Victorianist. right? But certainly the poet cannot be said to be so, as the economy of the title Vlurf <laughs> would stand in contradiction of it. So how do we account for the contradictions between the title of the collection and the poetic persona of this collection and some of the content. What's the strategy in this?
1: Hmm. Is there a strategy? Um, Is there a <laughs> Let me back up. Is there a strategy
0: <laughs>
1: in this? Um, uh, maybe strategies for survival of sorts. I have to say, you know, some of the poems in this book were started or first written when I, when I began my graduate work. Um, oh, really? Yeah, so it's, it's a book that has been very long Only in the about making. a year ago. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so back in the 1990s. Um, yeah, like from, from around 1992, you know, 93. Really when I began to work on research for what would become my dissertation. And I moved away from home, and I was very homesick. And other things were happening in, in my family, et cetera,
0: mm-hmm. that
1: made, uh, made it quite a difficult time, actually, just to be away and, and made working on Victorian literature seem like quite superfluous to what I was actually feeling. Oh, wow. And so, what I did in part to cope, as I was, for example, as I was writing a chapter on the critical works of John Ruskin which was one of the key chapters in my dissertation. I had loved ones who were ill, you know, and they were very far away and I couldn't be with them. And, and I was just angry, I suppose, at the at the time that I was spending. I was angry at my inability to be in two places at once, right, and sort of having to be in this place to pursue a goal, which was kind of, like I was saying, entrainment in Victorian studies, which which seemed... Not very helpful for dealing with sort of life's realities at the time. So I found myself literally with a black China marker. I don't know if you know what a China marker is, but um, these were markers. So my father was a furrier. And when, when I was little, I used to work in his fur factory. And when I was really little, before I could carry a razor blade and cut pelts, my job would be to count bundles of pelts as they hung on rings, and so I would be in the cold room counting the bundles to make sure there were the right number of skins. Because you know, a coat would take this number of skins of this kind of animal, mm-hmm. and a jacket would take this number of skins, and you had to have just the right number. So that was as a as a six year old, that was my important job, right? And the the thing I loved about that job was, um, my father would give me a black. That he called them china markers. <clears throat> and they're basically like wax markers yeah. where you can peel off. Uh, like a crayon? It's kind of like a crayon except it's it's like a pencil. You know, it actually is, is wrapped with with paper that you can ra- unravel uh, when the nub gets short. So mm-hmm. you can keep like using it. Yeah, yeah. Like a crayon, yeah, that's like a crayon. And so with the black china marker, I would write the numbers on these little tags of how many pelts were on, uh. and so I guess I still had some of these from from being you know in in his office back in the days and stuff in my pencil case or something, and I started t- using these black china markers to cross out hundreds of li- li- lines. Uh, in the end, it's like hundreds of pages of Ruskin's critical writings, and so nice. I have like you know a book's worth of. Ruskin, where every line is pretty much cut out, except I would leave a few words here and there, and this is a pretty typical erasure poetry technique of writing. Tom Phillips' humament had, had come out. As a Victorianist, I was very interested in it because he had used uh, the novel, uh, one novel uh, called A Human Document by uh, a, a not-a-very-well-known Victorian novelist named Malik, and he developed a whole series of poems by painting over, crossing out, erasing, um, most of the lines from every page. And so in some ways I was sort of doing a, a kind of Philipsian erasure, but in another way I was just acting out on, <laughs> quite literally on the texts uh, that I was uh, supposed to be reading and writing about for my dissertation. Mm-hmm. And so as I was writing a chapter about Ruskin, I was also in a way creating poems by completely Destroying, you know, the the Ruskin text that I was reading for my critical purposes, you know.
0: This is the result of your destruction. The, the yeah, <laughs> the volume and so yeah,
1: exactly. So the whole uh, mo- many of the poems in the first section are poems that were created mm-hmm. just out of those acts of um, of yes. erasure. Uh, genealogy story. you mentioned earlier was the first one, in oh, fact. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. I
0: was thinking of the series uh, first and last stanzas from poems found in the worm's kitchen where whole sections, in which whole sections of the poems are.
1: Yeah. So that, those were poems you know, I that I see. wrote. Those were nonsense poems that I wrote myself. They are, yes. There are, in fact, full poems. Um, but um, I decided, again, I think the, the excerpts. So I, what I decided to do was just cross out most of the middles of those poems and leave the, the first and last couplets or opening and closing stanzas of them. I think they're much better this way because the, the full poems themselves aren't <laughs> all that interesting or great, but they're more interesting if you only have little fragments of them. And um,
0: Well, yeah. My Blood Carpet. I'll, I'll read this for listeners. I let the blood into the parlor, curious to see if it would run farther. Then there's that break.
1: Then there are two stanzas missing, because that's what those little ellipses represent.
0: And then, when my love pulls his feet in, I feel a great pang to eat him, as if he's come fresh from the market to this plate, my blood carpet. Woo!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, Victorian nonsense poems were often extremely sort of violent and weird and strange. And so, yeah, I just wrote a whole bunch of nonsense poems. Again, it was actually when I was... um, doing research. I wrote all of these when I was in, uh, at Oxford in England. Oh, and uh, so when I was done with my day's work at the Bodleian Library, I went home and I wrote a few nonsense poems. And uh, so I had a whole collection of them. And then for this book, I just, I destroyed most of them and just left little pieces of them <laughs> <laughs> to, include, to include in this imaginary collection, you know, called The Worm's Kitchen, A Pantry of Light Verse for, for
0: Dark Evenings so to return back to the initial question which was about the kind of tensions between victorian and modern Mm. which i actually think is what is very effective actually and works very well in the individual poems as a whole so it it's that it also finds its origins in your early studies is what you're saying that there's a history behind it
1: yeah. Um, so if you call crossing out hundreds of pages of criticism <laughs> a study, then yes, it finds its origin in those early studies of Ruskin where I was basically so pissed off at not being able to be, you know, with by my father's side as he was going through, you know, you know, some some struggles um, that I I literally, you know,
0: took it out. Attack, attacked,
1: attacked the text. Yeah. But but left behind. Well the thing about Ruskin is if 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 you if you ever look Ruskin up at a university library you'll see he published an awful lot. <laughs> I <laughs> he mean stand to
0: shed some words. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah. He uh he yeah, he wasn't a concise writer. He was a he was a brilliant writer I th- I think, but he, you know, the 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 joke about, you know, eggshell and then I wrote a multi-volume work and then I had to write another multi-volume work, that was kind of that's kind of a joke about Ruskin, right? You know, he, his work his collected works are appear in you know many 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 volumes, and at the same time, you know you sort of have to wonder what 's motivating all of that very strong also he was a, he was a kind of a teacher he wanted to take his reader along with him and show him what he could see you know and and what 's motivating this incredible desire to 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 spend millions of words (laughs) trying to show someone something you know there has to be a sadness underlying that you know there has to be and actually there are so so there's there are just a lot of amazing concrete and he was and Ruskin was you know one of the great observers of the material world in my opinion in the 19th century anyways as it was changing through industrialization so he was very focused on observing plants rocks you know the, the colors of the sky, clouds. Um, he, he has a famous essay called Storm Clouds of the 19th Century, where over a 20-year period he observed the changing colors of clouds, which is an anti-industrialist argument that he formulates through simply observing the sky, but also about how modern painters need to account for the changing color of of our skies and of the air, et etc., But in the course of being such a great observer and articulator of his uh, observations of the material world, there are just some amazing metaphors, you know, uh, concrete, very concrete metaphors that the ones that I left behind in my crossing out, the ones that I sort of spared (laughs) were the ones that seemed to match my own affect at the time, which was a kind of deep sadness, a deep sense of detachment from the world and a, a deep desire to be connected with the world. And so those little pieces seemed to sum up something that was underlying all this sort of verbosity <laughs> that I was finding uh, in Ruskin. That, and the verbosity of Ruskin also represented time spent or wasted, you know, um, in a way, or time away from the feelings that uh, I wasn't really able to entertain because I had to finish my work, you know. So it's a typical struggle of any scholar or writer, uh, uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> so. but I was young, you know, and so I wasn't completely equipped to even understand it. And so I was kind of acting out against it, you know, in particular ways and acting out in part by, yeah, transforming my study of Ruskin, which would say more officially become critical articles or chapter, mm-hmm. a chapter of my dissertation, into the writing of poems that were just these tiny little nuggets that I kind of rescued from the large reading that I was doing that better captured, to me at the time anyways, how I was actually feeling.
0: They're magnificent poems. So, Jason, thank you so much. I'd like to strongly recommend LARF to my listeners. And uh, urge you to pick up this collection of poetry, which I think is very fine indeed. Thank you, Jason, for joining me on Getting Wet with Linda. Thanks, Linda. And that was my interview with Jason Camlot about his volume of poetry, Vlarf. While we do have many of the episodes already mapped out, please do write to us if you think there's another writer or another book you think we should be covering. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, please don't forget to rate us on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.